Um, listen, so glad that you're here. Uh, one of the things that I remind us about the, the purpose, the reason why we're here is just simply to encourage one another and, and to help you just simply uh, draw closer to Jesus Christ and to try to take your next step on your spiritual journey. We're all in different areas. And so I appreciate that you've come here. If this is your first time here, welcome. Um, I'm normally the person who speaks, but today what we have is a, a guest speaker. He's a, he's a, a good friend. He is one of the elders here. He's been an elder for about a year and a half or something like that. Um, but uh, Ashish has, has spoken here before, and we actually had him scheduled to speak in the, the late fall last year. And then he ended up, he, he got sick and he wasn't able to do that. So we, we scheduled him again, and he was supposed to, he was going to be here this last week. He came, but nobody else came last week. So he was here by himself, and I said, no, Ashley, we got to do it this week. So third time's a charm, I guess, here. Um, and he was able to speak during the first uh, the first service, and it was it was really wonderful. But he's actually tackling um, a, a pretty heavy subject, and I really appreciate the effort that he's put into it. Um, if you did not grab one of the um, one of the sermon notes, there's a bunch of sermon notes back there. There are sermon notes up here. If you didn't get a um, you know a folding thing for sermon notes, Ash doesn't rely on slides the way that I do. I usually have slides with scripture. Um, he he just he's memorized the whole Bible, so he just goes from memory. Now, but actually, uh, you would be surprised. Ash is a pretty scholarly guy, so we we really appreciate him. But uh, would you guys welcome Ash as he comes up and he speaks to us today? It's such a joy to be here. You don't have to clap for me. I'm one of you, a member here. But thank you for the welcome and the opportunity to preach. You know, um, this is technically what the first Sunday of the year, right? It was last week, but it was snow, so we couldn't do it. You know, as we enter the new year, one of the things we all talk about is, is planning for the future, right? We think of the future, we have great hopes, plans, and we think about the future. Now, I thought for us as a church, it might be good, good time to think about also the ultimate future, you know, the, the eternity, the eternal aspects of life. And so I thought maybe we will do well to think about heaven, hell, and then talk also about how should we live in the now in light of these realities. So today we'll talk about hell, and then, then God willing, in this quarter we can talk about the other things. Um, so it's the traditional doctrine of hell. Uh, believe me, I was telling the first service, and, and by the way, this is sort of a little bit funny for me, because I've never preached two times in a row like this, so it feels a little different, but the Lord is with me. So, I was telling the first service, you know, that this is a sermon I don't want to preach, and, and I was much like Moses telling God, why don't you tell Aaron to do it, or or someone else to do it. But, you know, and, and, and partly because of the matter is so weighty and it's, it, it's, it weighs on your soul emotionally too. But, um, and, and, and also, I wish that hell did not exist. I wish that it was not in the Bible. I really wish from the bottom of my heart that nobody goes there. And I wish that there was some clever way for me to kind of manipulate the scripture to tell you it's on the side somewhere, don't worry about it. But, to be faithful to Scripture, that is something we cannot do. It's very plainly taught in the Scripture, and 
And we have to present the evidence taught in the Bible. You know, if you want to be faithful to Christ, you should still talk about hell also. You know who was the person on earth who talked more about hell than anyone? It was Christ Jesus himself. Jesus always talked about the judgment of God, the anger of God, the wrath of God, and the final account that will be settled when he comes again. And so he was very clear about it. He never sugarcoated it, and he was as clear as he could be. So as a faithful follower of Christ, I think we should talk about it too. To stop short only at the love of God and not talk about the judgment of God, the wrath of God, is to misinterpret Scripture. It is. It is to misinterpret Scripture at best. At worst, it is to affect the eternal destinies of people. Not bringing it out with clarity, it is affecting their eternal destinies. So I don't want to be, neither do the elders here, want to toy or sugarcoat or soft pedal this Doctrine. We want to be as clear, even if it's an inconvenient thing to talk about hell. Now, when we talk about hell, we must also talk about the emotion of fear, right? You know, fear is a tremendous emotion. It's one of that God gave us as a natural emotion. It's healthy in its right context. But a lot of people in the business world and elsewhere use it to modify human behavior to accomplish their goals, don't they? And even within the life of church... Uh, pastors use it as a scare tactic to use fear to accomplish their goals. I'm not going to do that. But I will tell you this. What if, what if, as an objective reality, the only proper emotion when you hear about that place is rightly fear? What if I tell you about this place, hell, a real place, where the right reaction is to be afraid about it? Because you don't want to go there. It's a dreadful place. And so maybe fear in the context of hell is not an exaggerated emotion, but maybe perhaps it is the right emotion. Right? I mean, we all have several fears while we walk the earth. We fear the fear of cancer, the fear of poverty, the fear of loss of reputation, maybe the fear of going to jail, or, or, the, or, the, or, or this fear, or fear of losing our loved ones, or fear of a, uh, a contracting a painful disease. There are different kinds of fear, right? A fear of accident, a fear of this, a fear of that. But none of those fears stand in comparison to the fear of hell. Because all of those fears are a temporal reality. But the fear, but hell being an eternal reality, a fear that puts you in the right place regarding these destinies is a good fear. Is a right fear. It is the right emotion in the life of church when thinking about fear. I mean, remember the parable of Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus? Jesus tells the story about a rich man. He was dressed in fine purple clothing. Purple was an expensive dye back in those days. So to be dressed in purple, to live in a house of, with a compound, to have food, to have his barn full of food, and to live a lavish life, a posh life, is to be really comfortable while on earth. But at the gates of the rich man was Lazarus, a poor, sick pitiful person. He had sores and boils on his body. The dogs were licking his wounds. I don't think he had friends and family. He was at the gates of the rich man looking to eat at the crumbs or the food waste that comes 
thrown away from the table of the rich man. The very food that even for which the wild dogs, the street dogs were also competing. And these dogs are licking his wounds. When you think about Lazarus's picture, it's full of pity. Right? It's full of, he's a destitute, he's ruined, he's in waste, he's a, he's a tremendous loser. Right? Jesus tells this parable in such hyperbolic terms and draws this contrast to make a very important point. It says, then one day the rich man died and the Lazarus also died. The rich man had a burial, he had a possession, maybe people gave a speech at his funeral. And Lazarus, you know, we don't know what happened to him. But they died and then the rich man goes to Hades, hell where he's tormented. Whereas Lazarus is now escorted to the bosom of Abraham, meaning heaven. And he's comforted forever and ever and ever and ever. And whereas the rich man is now tormented forever and ever and eternity. Why is Jesus telling us this parable? Because he's saying one was a bad steward of money and did not care about eternity and is now suffering forever. And so what he's saying is your temporal realities are one thing, but your eternal realities are one thing and that matters. Right? Your eternity is of more significance than your temporary. I'm just like you. Once the Monday starts, I'm in a race. Right? We're so busy in modern day. Right? Busyness is something that is normal to us. And we forget that we are eternal beings. Blaise Pascal, one of the brilliant scientists, he wrote in Pansies that the most important thing about us is eternity, but the most thing we're occupied with is the temporary. And he says it's a very, very unfortunate thing. Even C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, you know, when you turn and talk to one another, it is one immortal talking to another immortal. And he says, season your conversations with things with that reality in mind. And so it's very important, my friends, to think about things that matter for eternity. So we talked about, we talked about fear and hell. But, you know, we should calibrate ourselves a little bit further. Do we dread the place hell? Are we afraid of this place hell? But who really should we be afraid of? What really should we be afraid of? In Luke 12, verses 4 to 5, Jesus is telling, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is telling, fear God, the Father, who has the authority to cast people into hell. After your body is dead, he takes your soul and puts you into hell forever and ever. And it's not so much the place that we fear, it is really God, this terrifying God, this consuming fire that we should really fear. He's not an ordinary God. He cares about justice. He cares about sin. He cares about offenses. He cares about transgressions. He cares about all of that that we commit all the time against Him and against each other. And He says, Jesus is telling him, fear Him. Because he can torture you for eternity. Anyone else on the earth can only get to your body temporarily. You know when the early Christians 
when they suffered because they followed Christ. They were tormented, tortured. Some were burnt alive. Some were flogged. Some had holes drilled into them and solid metal pulled into them of some kind, right? Some were tied with their limbs to horses and ripped apart. But Jesus says, all of that pain, I know it is painful and suffering, but do not worry because it only gets to your body and to now. But fear Him who can do more than that in hell. And so that's what we have to remember, my friends. Well, if it is such a sobering and reality thing that affects us, then why is it not emphasized in the church enough? Why has this doctrine of hell fallen by the wayside and relegated to a corner? What has led to it? So I want to quickly give you a historical context. Actually speaking, it has been emphasized in the church up until the 17th century, from early church to Middle Ages to 17th century. It was clearly taught, except for one church father who protested about this doctrine. But the church then, in one of the ecumenical councils, uh, condemned it as heresy. But up until the 17th century, it was clearly taught and everybody understood about eternal destinies, heaven, hell, the judgment of God. But 17th century, being the century of enlightenment era, we call it, right? The century with the rise of psychological theories, the rise of intellectual theories, the rise of reason. I think, therefore I am. Right? All of that led to undermine scripture. It... It's, it led to sowing seeds of doubt about Scripture. People started thinking, really? Do we as modern people really believe these primitive things? Heaven, hell, people going to hell forever, and the seeds of doubt were sown. One Bible scholar says, there were several changes happening. There was a changed view of God. There was a, there's a traditional view of God, but the, that view is changing. There was a changed view of God. There was a changed view of self. There was a changed view of justice, and there was a changed view of salvation itself. Together, the tectonic shifts were happening, and things were changing. How was, what was the changed view of God? God is no longer holy or just, but His attribute of love encompasses everything He does, and therefore here is a cosmic genie who is out there to only love you and make you feel better. He's not the great creator who's going to take accounts and demonstrate justice being the right king, but he's there to serve you, to make you feel better. Because you need love, you need affection, you need care. There was a changed view of God. There was a changed view of self. There was a rise of psychological theories. The blame of a person for the personal choices they make is now being put on external influences. Biological factors, your genetic predisposition, your societal conditioning. But never was anyone taking personal accountability of their choices. So there was a blame shift going on on external factors. So there was a changed view of self. But there was also a changed view of justice. Justice was no longer retributive justice. But it was restorative justice that people wanted, where a person is reformed. But retributive justice is when a crime is committed, you have to pay for it. It has to be fair and square. So retributive justice was seen in a negative light. And then there was a changed view of salvation too. Salvation is no longer finding salvation in Christ absolving yourself of the guilt and shame and the crimes that you have committed against God. But salvation is seen as freedom from oppression of internal and external things. And freedom 
of identifying yourself, finding yourself, identifying and fulfilling and finding the best version of yourself. Sin is a personal offense against God, against a holy and just God. But that's taken away from the definition of salvation. And therefore there was a changed view of salvation. And so all of these changes were happening up until the modern era. All of these are true even till today. And they have hurt our modern sensibilities towards the scripture. But I would say, in addition to all of that, one of the fundamental changes was the changed view of scripture. Scripture, the Bible, the word of God is no longer seen as reliable guide for life. There are other theories people like to follow. There are other uh, isms of this and that that people like to follow. And scripture is not the true word of God that can guide you. So there was a, a changed view of scripture even till today in the life of church. People's attitude to scripture is very, very casual. Do we take that to be the word of God? Do we read it with diligence? Do we search the scriptures diligently? Do we understand the scripture? Or are we just like, we believe whatever we want to believe? And so there was a change view of scripture. All this, all of this led to minimizing the doctrine of hell or thinking about the eternal aspects of life. So that's the context. And now... Let's go on to define hell. But let me read some scripture for you. Matthew 25:30, And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing as in grinding of teeth. Matthew 25:30, Matthew 25:41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25:46 Then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life Isaiah 66:24 And they will go out and look to the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me the worms that eat them will not die the fire that burns them will not be quenched and they will be loathsome to all mankind Daniel 12:2 Multitudes asleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life others to shame and everlasting contempt Mark 9:42 to 48 If anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me to stumble it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea If your hand causes you to stumble Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than the two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eyes cause you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. The book of Revelation, chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. 
they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or anyone who receives the mark of its name. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. I've read most of the New Testament books, right? Talking from Gospels to Revelation. It is very clearly taught. It's a torment forever and ever. So what is hell in light of what just we read? I think we can define hell as a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. It is for the unbelievers who refuse to repent of their sins or wrongdoing and refuse to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is hell. It's a place of eternal, conscious punishment for the wicked and for those who have not embraced Christ. Let's spend a little bit of time on who are the people who go to hell. It's the wicked. It's the unrighteous, the unbelieving who go to hell. People who reject God. People who reject the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 18 to 32. I'm going to read 29 to 32. By the way, you don't have to look into the scriptures. Just listen to what I'm reading as I'm reading all these scriptures verbatim. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. The Romans is talking about people who are rebelling against God. And it is the description of how people are rebelling. It says, verse 29, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding. There is no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So these are the kind of people who go to hell. Now, if you are here and you're not a Christian or you're thinking about accepting Christianity as a faith and you're a friend of ours visiting us, it is not particular to us in the Bible, these things. It's a description of even of you, the Bible says. It is for all of them. You know, don't you, do you not know that there is a thing called conscious, my friends? Conscious is something that we have. You don't have to have to tell people what is wrong, what is right. Right? People have a conscience. The conscience barks at you. It is so loud at you. When you do wrong, even as a non-Christian, you know you've done wrong. So your conscience is your guiding soul and it condemns you. It judges you sometimes. It pricks you. And so, my friends, it's not something that only Christianity is saying something out of the Bible. You know it when you do wrong. The only thing the Bible says is because... It says God is the one who put the conscience in you. The Bible says God is the great creator. He made us in his image. He made us as moral beings. 
And he is the moral lawgiver. We have the conscience, we have this, because he is the one who puts it in. And he is the lawgiver. And as a lawgiver and as a judge, he will take accounts one day. There will be a day when he will settle the scores. And so that is why he is giving the list of all the ways in which people fall. These are the ones who go to hell. John 3.18, who are the other ones that go to hell? It says, John 3.18, whoever believes in him, him as in Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So whoever does not believe in Christ, according to John's gospel, goes to hell. Because they stand condemned. And who are the other ones that go to hell? Matthew 25. Go home and read the 46 verses. There are several parables. And Jesus talks about some of these people. The first ones are the foolish virgins. The foolish virgins were unprepared for the coming of Christ, for the bride. They were callous, careless, unplanned, busy with the temporary, and careless. And therefore, when the bride came, they weren't prepared, unlike the wise virgins who were prepared. And then the door was shut and it was too late for them. The foolish virgins went according to the parable that Jesus gives to hell. The servant who did not make good use of the gifts and resources that was given to him. The master gave the servant a talent. It's a, it's a gift of a large amount. And he did not put those resources to good use. He buried it. And when the master came, he said, I buried it. I have nothing to show you. And then the master is angry and he tells him, you being a bad steward, get away from me into a place where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth, meaning hell. So those who are bad stewards go to hell, according to the Bible. And then if you read the Matthew 25, there is a third category of people, those who refuse to perform acts of compassion because of their heart and heart. Or perhaps, perhaps they do these acts of compassion, but their motives are not sincere. Maybe they do it to boost their image or to make them feel better. They don't do good for good's sake. They don't do good for others' sake with pure and sincere motives. They pretend. They're hypocrite. And they're so hypocritical, they don't even know. Those are the kind of people that go to hell. In fact, Jesus talks about that kind here. You know, in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, they're the good people, right? They're good people. To him, God will say, Oh, you're blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom that is prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. These are the good people at the end of the day when Christ settles the account. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And then the king will tell them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. The attitude of the righteous, when you catch them doing good things, is always like, oh, it wasn't a big deal. They're barely aware of it. They do it as to their brothers and sisters, as they do it unto the Lord. They don't, they don't do it because 
They think, oh, you're rich, so I'm going to give you importance. Oh, you're poor, I'm going to treat you differently. They are treating poor, the rich, the needy, the black, the white, the educated, the uneducated, whoever they are, they're always treating them with compassion. The hungry, they feed them. The poor, they help them. The, the lonely, they're with them. The prison, they visit them. But now think about the people that go to hell. These are the categories are on the left to Christ. And he says, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison and you did not look after me. And look, look at their response and they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And Jesus tells them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So you saw all the categories of people that go to hell. And then if you read Matthew 13, it says the parable of the net. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was filled, when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's very clear the kind of people that go to hell. Now having established who are the kinds of people that go to hell, let's move on to understand the nature of hell. What is hell like? The first thing is that it is conscious torment. Isaiah 66, 24, we read it, but I'm happy to read it again. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. Revelation 14, verse 10. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image. Or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. The torment continues consciously every day. Forever and ever and ever. It's conscious torment, my friends. It is conscious torment. It is something that you are aware of. Uh, to think that when you die, you lose consciousness of self is to think wrong. When you die, you leave your body in the ground, the external housing, but you are very conscious of who you are as a self. This is coming from scripture. Brendan talked about it the week before where he said the righteous at the coming of the Lord are resurrected and they're given a new body, a resurrected body and a body that is fit to enter heaven, a body that can see God face to face a body that is different but when, the, when Christ comes, the wicked also get a body 
The unrighteous also get a body, but this body is fit to enter hell, where the body is tormented forever and ever, but is not consumed. Fire generally consumes the material it latches onto, right? And then the material goes away. But this body is prepared that this body can be tormented consciously for eternity in hell. And so, my friends, we have to be very careful about these eternal destinies because the Bible teaches that these destinies are set at death. The only chance we have to think rightly about life and embrace Christ and understand these things is now while you have breath. Because at death, you read the rich man in Lazarus' parable. The rich man goes to Hades and, the, and, and, and Lazarus goes to heaven. Purgatory, as taught by Catholic Church, I don't find that any evidence of it in the Bible. Purgatory is a place where you die and you go and you're there and then you're sort of refined and purified in a way so then you could be sent to heaven from there as a stopgap solution. But that is not taught in the Bible. The rich man immediately was in hell. And then when judgment comes, all of his accounts are opened and he's judged and then he's sent away to hell again, in a sense. He's in hell, but there are degrees of hell, degrees of punishment in hell. Remember when Jesus tells in the parables, Oh, I wish I did these miracles that I did here in this city. But it is better on the last day when the judgment comes, this, these guys will have a less punishment than you, because I did more for you and you refuse to believe me. So there are degrees of punishment in hell where, based on what you do, you're tormented differently. But you are tormented forever. And it's irreversible. That's what makes this doctrine such a sobering doctrine. It's a conscious torment where the destinies are set at your death now. Here is one preacher, Edward Donnelly, talking about how you feel in hell. You, I quote, you as a being will become ever more degraded, more contemptible, more lonely. Everything good in you will be taken away and everything bad in you let loose. All your evil passions will burn, increasing and consuming you until you become utterly foul. Nothing good, nothing worthwhile, a horrible, monotonous dreariness, unenlivened by a single ray of light, as you fester and stew in your loathsomeness, this is what will happen to you when you're consciously suffering in hell. So that's the point. You're conscious of your suffering. It's torment. And then the second aspect of hell is that it's eternal torment. I would be relaxed if my consciousness torment is for a time. And then if it disappears... I'm good with that, at least speaking intellectually. But it says it's eternal torment. Your conscious torment has no end. It continues forever and ever and ever. This is the most troubling thing about me when I think about the hell, because I just can't grapple with my finite man, that God would torment somebody for eternity and eternity in hell. You know, I'm, I'm like you. I'm a modern person, right? We are all used to science and modernity and the sensibility that modernities bring. And in me and my work, I work with things where our senses go to space. We look at, we, con- we try and modify the behavior of electrons and neutrons to do certain things. And then when I come here and I read these things, I'm, I'm just amazed. I'm just marveling at how these things unfold in life. 
It's eternal torment? Really? Yes, it is. That is what the Bible says. Matthew 25:46. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. All these verses are on your outline, by the way. And they will be shut out, shut out from the presence of the Lord. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of fans, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying, actually, the doctrine of hell, that is so fiercely debated in the evangelical church and in general, he calls it elementary teaching. He says, come on guys, this is not a debatable thing. Everybody knows there is eternal reward and then there is eternal judgment. Let's move beyond to maturity, then laying again a foundation of elementary teaching. The fact that we struggle with this and we, we, we want to not take it, Forgiven is a disturbing thing. Paul would have been surprised. But it is eternal judgment, eternal torture, according to Paul, is elementary understanding of Christian faith, my friends. And here is a place where the torment is for eternity, right? It's conscious torment, it's eternal torment. You know, in the first service, Kyle was telling that, oh, I, that I was suffering with, coal, uh, with cough. And I, my, my, my connect group people and some of my friends know I've been coughing because of this COVID thing for about eight weeks now. And coughing, coughing to the point that sometimes it hurt, hurts my ribs. So, but, but, you know, when I was thinking through this, I actually thought all that was happening for me as a vessel in preparation for the Sermon on Health to understand how inconvenient it is to, to suffer. You know, when I was coughing, right? But, but think about my good fortune, even with my cough here while I'm on earth, right? There is a, man, there is a, there's a physical relief, right? I have all these pharmaceuticals, right, that I take. You have Delsum, you have Tussinex, uh, Tad's wife, Sue, calls it the yellow gold, because it puts you to sleep too, you know? And so there is a physical relief for me, right? I cough, cough, and I put myself to sleep, right? And then there is emotional relief too, emotional health. My wife looks at me, has pity on me and rubs my back and then I take advantage of that and I say, can I get a head massage? And then, you know, there is, there is, there is another physical relief of some kind, right? And then there's mental relief too, because mentally now I'm anxious, like I'm coughing, coughing, coughing. Is it affecting other parts of my body? And, and I harass my primary physician. He regrets giving me his cell number to me. Gary Freeman, Dr. Gary Freeman, I love him to death. It's like, she stop calling me. This is normal. You're not going to die. You'll be fine. I have your blood results. I have your chest x-ray. Everything is fine. Go back to bed. So, but that's a relief because now I know it's only just my cough. I'm not going to die. So there is a good fortune through my suffering while on earth, while I'm here. And then my connect group people are praying. Kyle has been so good in texting me and saying, I'm praying for you, buddy. And there's all sorts of support. But in hell, there is no mental relief. There's no emotional relief. There is no physical relief even for a second. There is no goodness in hell. It's an absolute 
ruin, a place of destruction and torment and torture that you just cannot survive. But you continue to survive because God keeps you that way to torment you for eternity. You know, Jonathan Edwards in his sermon called Eternity of Hell Torments talks about it. It's a long quote. I quote, Consider what it is to suffer extreme torment forever and ever, to suffer it day and night from one year to another, from one age to another, and from one thousand ages to another. So adding age to age and thousands to thousands in pain, in wailing and lamenting, groaning and shrieking and gnashing your teeth with your souls full of dreadful grief and amazement and your bodies and every member full of racking torture without any possibility of getting ease, without any possibility of moving God to pity by your cries, without any possibility of hiding yourselves from Him, without any possibility of diverting your thoughts from your pain, without any possibility of obtaining any manner of mitigation or help or change for better. And I continue to quote, Consider how dreadful despair will be in such torment. How dismal will it be when you're under these racking torments to know assuredly that you never, never shall be delivered from them. To have no hope when you shall wish that you might be turned into nothing, but shall have no hope of it. After you shall have endured these torments millions of ages, but shall now have hope of it. After you shall have worn a thousand more such ages, you shall have no hope, but shall know that you are not one whit nearer to the end of your torments. But still, there are the same groans, the same shrieks, the same doleful cries, incessantly to be made by you, and that the smoke of your torment shall still ascend up forever and ever." The damned in hell will have two infinites perpetually to amaze them and swallow them up. One is an infinite God whose wrath they will bear and in whom they will behold their perfect and irreconcilable enemy. The other is the infinite duration of their torment. End quote. It's conscious torment, but it's eternal torment. Edwards talks about it plainly. So we talked about the nature of hell. But also, I want you to think about the images of hell. You know, when you read your Bible, there are images of fire when describing hell. Images of darkness when describing hell. And then there is hell as suffering. Fire. The throne into the lake of fire. Revelation 20.15. Thrown into a fiery furnace. Matthew talks about it. Hell is darkness. Thrown into outer darkness. Jude 13, the gloom of utter darkness awaits them. Darkness meaning there is no hope, there is no light in heaven, in hell. So hell is utter darkness, hell is suffering, because there is intense pain and never-ending pain in hell. It affects the whole faculties of a person, physical, mental, and emotional. So hell is all of that. You know, but when people think about the images of hell, and you're reading general Christian literature, some scholars would argue, oh, we should not, we should just take these, these are all mere images, we should take this metaphorically. But what, when, when Bible gives you images, what is it trying to do as a linguistic tool? Images are pointing to a reality greater than the images that they're pointing to. 
So whether you take them literally or metaphorically, hell is still a dreadful reality. So you can't just wiggle and get your way out of this by saying these are just images. These are terrible images of a reality far greater than what the images are trying to convey. You know, I was selling the first service, right? I said, if I were to tell you I love my wife more than a billion dollars, are you going to say, oh, he's comparing his wife to U.S. currency and not to cryptocurrencies. Oh, he's comparing his wife to not euros, which is stronger than dollar. Maybe he doesn't like his wife that much. Is that how you're going to think about my line? Or are you going to say, oh, he's comparing his wife to something of tremendous value, and he loves her more than that, right? But in Christian realm, sometimes we are a little dumb-dumb about how we interpret things. You know, so I want you to be really careful about it. Don't think they're just mere metaphors and therefore it's a cop-out, right? No, it's not. We have to be careful, my friends, as we interpret the scriptures. I know people struggle with these images because when you say hell is fire, there's light. But then hell is also darkness. I don't know. This is a reality that baffles me. We don't know. We can't fully describe it. But God is true in His Word when He says. And we will understand it. You know, John Calvin, in his Institutes, writes, Now, because no description can adequately deal with the gravity of God's vengeance against the wicked, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire, undying, gnawing at the heart, These are the expressions the Holy Spirit certainly intended to use to confound all our senses with dread. And so, the images in the Bible are used to fill you with dread concerning heaven. And it's equally true about heaven too. When you read all the symbolic images of of heaven, you need to have your imagination enticed to see that heaven would be a beautiful place. When it says this... The roads are paved with streets of gold. Everything is crystal clear. Everything is wonderful. There is no sorrow. There is no sin. There is no tears. There is no pain. And we look at the face of God. And so, so use imaginations to rightly understand what the Bible is teaching. But don't use the images to explain away. Hell is still a dreadful place. So we talked about what is hell. We talked about... It's nature. We talked about the images. But let me also put it in a way as what is the purpose of hell. And the first one is, is to displace the justice of God. Hell in its existence, people that go there, go there as a demonstration of the justice of God. Because our God is a God of justice. The chief description of hell in the New Testament is punishment. It served the justice of God by three things. Christopher Morgan and Robert Peterson compiled a book and they, and they surveyed the evidence of New Testament scriptures. And they say the three, three dominant ways the Bible displays the justice of God is served is by punishment, destruction, and banishment. The justice of God is served by all of those three things. It is punishment. Hell is punishment. Second Thessalonians uh, 1, 5 to 10, and I'm going to read verse 8. He says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. 
So God being a righteous judge, His justice is served by punishing the wicked and the rebellious. It is punishment from God. Now here I want to address one objection. A lot of people say, how can a loving God send people to hell? I'm tempted to say, what Bible are you reading, my friend? God is also a God of justice. You cannot take one attribute of God and elevate it to a, le- to a level where you interpret all of Scripture through that one attribute. God, you can't piecemeal God like that. God exists in perfect harmony with who He is. He's equally merciful and extreme and great in His mercy, but when He's angry and wrathful, the Bible says, it is an awful thing to fall into the hands of a living and angry God in Hebrews 10. It says in Hebrews 13, God is a consuming fire. God is holy, holy, holy. So, God is not just a God of love. God is a God of righteous anger and justice. He never lets the, puni- uh, he never lets the sin go by unattended, unaccounted, unsettled. He's also a God of justice. He's a righteous king. And he's a righteous judge. Maybe in the human court, people can get away doing wrong things. Because they were clever. They can duck the system. But in the eyes of the omnipotent, omniscient God, no one can hide anything under the rug, no matter how small. Because the eyes of the Lord searches the hearts of people very closely. And therefore, the justice of God is important, my friends. You know, Christians always like to say, oh, it is unconditional love. But I think one Bible scholar argues it's better to say it is contra-conditional because God's love to you comes unconditionally in Christ. Somebody paid the penalty for your sin, for God to love you like that, to keep forgiving you like that. Christ took the cross. He was the substitute. He was the Lamb. It did not come to you for free. He took the prize. And so it's not unconditional in that abstract sense, my friends. Because of Christ, you are saved. And so let's be careful to some of these objections that we raise if we are interpreting them correctly. Now, what is the second aspect of the justice of God? It's destruction. God's justice is served in punishing you, but also ruining you. Here it means hell is final and utter loss. It's ruin, it's waste. Loss of any sign of life or vitality. In hell, there is no life, there is no vitality. It's a picture of those who have failed to embrace life, and now what remains is ruin and utter waste. It is a life destroyed. It's destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, it says. Enter, the narrow, enter through the narrow gate, Matthew 7.13.14 For wide is, the gate and bro- wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow that leads to life, and only a few find it. They're destroyed in hell. You know, here we must address a misinterpretation. It's called annihilationism. It's also called conditionalism or conditional morality. Annihilationists argue from the scripture 
because of that verse that I read in Second Thessalonians, which says they will be punished with everlasting destruction, that these people in hell will be destroyed in a sense that they are annihilated, completely gone, like a vapor. They say, well, you have paid for your sins for, say, a hundred years, a thousand years, and then ultimately you will be annihilated completely. You lose consciousness and you disappear. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says it's eternal conscious punishment. We read Matthew 25 multiple times, and I've been reading that again and again. But to this, Doug Moo, a New Testament scholar, argues, one can speak of a barren land, an ointment that is poured out wastefully. One can speak of a barren land that's just there, and an ointment that is poured out wastefully, but none of these cases the object ceases to exist. They cease to be useful or exist in their original intended state. And so, you're not annihilated in hell. You just cease to be useful. You, you are there only to suffer. And that's what the Bible means by everlasting destruction. You're destroyed forever and ever. You're not annihilated. Annihilationism would have been nice if it was true. You know why? Because then I cease to exist. I'm not even conscious. So I can live my merry life and do what I want and do whatever I want. But it is not what the Bible teaches. What's the third thing about the justice of God being served as? We talked about it being punishment. It's talked about it as being destruction. But the third thing is also called banishment. Banishment is where it is showing separation, exclusion, or being left outside. While believers are Entering heaven, a wonderful city of God, the unrighteous are banished and left, left to suffer torment. Jesus, the king, we read in Matthew 25, is personally banishing people from his presence into the lake of fire. He says in Matthew 7, 21-23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. And he banishes you. Revelation 22, 14 to 15, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Referring to heavenly city. But outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So, it is banishment from everything that is good. You're utterly separated. Even in the Lazarus and rich man's parable in Luke 16, it says, The rich man cries out to Abraham, says, Can you please send me Lazarus and have his finger dipped in a water so he can put it on my tongue? And Abraham says, No one can come from here to there because there's a huge chasm that separates them. What does that mean? You don't have to take it literally if you don't want to. That's fine. But the point still remains. It's irreversible. You cannot go from one place to the other. You're banished forever into that bad place. And you will never be having the hope to enter where the righteous and the heavenly city is. So it's banishment. But what's the other purpose of God? It serves the justice of God. But the other purpose is in Romans 9, 19 to 23. It says... Does not the potter 
have the right to make use of the same lump of clay, some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction? What if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy, whom He prepared in advance for glory, even us whom He also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? According to the Bible, unlike what we think and detest, hell somehow glorifies God. We can't see that perfectly because in, on earth our vision is short-sighted. We see not in full, we see in part. Right? But when the scales fall off and when Christ comes, we will see far better. And somehow in God's economy, hell is a place that actually reflects God and glorifies God and elevates Him and and supposed to be a good thing according to the scriptures. But we don't see it perfectly as finite beings because it's hard for us to see it that way. The problem of evil, we talk about it. Hell is seen as a problem of evil, P-O-E, right? Many people say, how can we believe this? It's a real terrible problem of evil. It just can never be reconciled. But not in God's plan. God's plans don't end in time. In eternity, He reconciles all things. What doesn't make sense now will make perfect sense later. Because God sees everything as omniscient from the beginning to the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. So the problem of evil is a problem to pragmatists, to Marxists, to Buddhists, to all the clever atheists, to all the agnosis. To them, it's a problem of evil, but not to the Christian book, not in the Bible. Because God eradicates evil completely to be with Him in heaven forever for those who have a hope in Him. And so, that was the purpose, too, that we talked about. Hell somehow glorifies God. Now we come to another main objection. The reason I made it so comprehensive, I want you to really think about these things when you go home. One of the biggest objections is, Ash or Ashish is unfair because there's a disproportion here. How can sins committed in time be punished with eternity? It's unfair. Most people who say this, raise this objection, they're not saying this with humility. They're not saying, I'm struggling with this. It's, it's, it's a sin committed in time, but I'm being held accountable for eternity. That's not the mood with which they're saying, if you read evangelical literature. They're saying it's unfair. How can God do this? This is ridiculous. That's the attitude. But is it? Is it? Here, we need to understand, the punishment is not measured in the length of time. The punishment is measured as to the height of the offense against whom it is committed. What is the dignity and status of the person against whom it is committed? A sin against a peasant, a poor farmer, is, will, will get some kind of punishment, sure. But a sin against a king will have a different degree of punishment, right? Even in human sense, it makes sense for us. And then you take an infinite, holy God, the one who says, I'm a great God, I'm a great creator. I made the heavens and the earth by the word of his mouth. I made these deep oceans and all the things that are in it. I made the wild animals. To Job, he says, 
Job, where were you when I created the foundation of the world? You come here asking for an answer? You want me to hold accountable for your suffering? You want an answer for me? You want me to take me for task? You want an answer for me? You think I'm just like you, a finite, ordinary creature? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I separated the waters and I constrained the seas by themselves? Where were you when I put the constellations in place? He says, I tell the lightnings and thunders to go, and they go to a certain place and say, here we are. He plays with lightnings and thunderstorms. That's what God is telling Job. Can you recalibrate yourself to who I am? I'm a great God. Can, do you feed the lion that's hiding in the thicket? Do you control that great thing, the Leviathan? Go home and read Job 39, 40 and all of these things. God says, I'm a great God. The nations, all these nations that are there on earth, the powerful nations with their nuclear weapons and all of their advanced armory, they're like a drop in the bucket in front of me. They're like vapor. I'm a great God. You can't take me to be a casual person. I am high and lifted up and the thousands and myriads of angels are shouting, holy, 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 because they just can't contain His glory. Even when He comes on the earth, even for a brief moment to show Himself, the, the mountains are trembling. This fire and the smoke, even inanimate objects that don't have life, have the fear and the presence of the Lord. And He's a great God. And you think you can offend Him and transgress His law and ridicule Him and take His Son, Christ Jesus, lightly and do all of this day after day, week after week, year after year. And then you say it's unfair that God is punishing me for eternity. How dare you, is what I would say. I would say you should be really reading the Bible more carefully. You sin against an infinite God, and then you think that infinite punishment is not the right answer for it? Oh, I would, I would not go that route. God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 13. It is an awful, awful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10 talks about it. And so I would be careful, my friends, there is really no escape route out of this thing other than to accept the fact that it is plainly taught in the Bible. So we talked about what is hell, we talked about its nature, we raised some objections, but this is my favorite part, escaping hell. I think we should conclude with that. You do not have to go there, my friends. No one has to go there. Because God, as great as He is in His anger, greater is He in His mercy. Read Exodus 34, it says, oh, Moses is asking, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Describe to me your character. And you know how what God says? says, I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in steadfast love, and faithful. And He is merciful to a degree that you just cannot exhaust His mercy. You can swim in the oceans of His mercy. He's a merciful God and He has provided a solution in Christ. In Christ, you can escape hell, my friends. You know, Christ is God. He came from heaven two thousand years ago. Right? We know he, John's prologue talks about it. He came and, he sa- and John announces him saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. He came in humility 
as a person to take away the wrath of God by going on to the cross. He was tortured for your sake. He was beaten for your sake. He was flogged for your sake. He was misunderstood for your sake. He took the punishment. He was sweating drops of blood, praying that he doesn't have to go on it because such is the anger of God on him. But Christ took it willingly because you don't have to go to hell. He was your substitute. He was your perfect substitute. You know, every religion, my friends, here, if you hear among us, as a friend visiting us, and you're not a Christian, I'm going to tell you the difference between every other theorism and that is out there versus Christianity. Christianity is the only religion where it asks you to do nothing. All you have to do is look to Christ and believe and embrace Him. Every other theory and religion wants you to do something. The burden is on you. When the scales are judged, when the scales are weighed, the good must outweigh the bad for you to have any hope. But this is a freeing religion in my view. Because you know why? Because the burden is on Christ. He is your substitute. He takes all the bad that you've done in the past, you're doing now and will do in the future. He takes all of it on himself and he pays for it as a penalty to guard the righteous judge by his blood on the cross. And then all the good you were supposed to do that you cannot do, that you are supposed to do in the future, that you have not done in the past, you're not doing now, He does it on your behalf. And He gives you all the reward. He credits all His righteousness to you and He's the perfect substitute. And so that at the end when the, when the angels come to separate the wicked and the righteous and the judgment of God comes, you can say, I'm in Christ. I believe my Christ. And He is my substitute. In Him I have hope. And that's the way to escape hell. Which means you have to read about him in the scripture. You have to see, is this a, a real person? Is he God? Is this a sacrifice of merit? You have to understand him. You have to walk with him. You have to follow him. And so that is how we escape hell, my friends. And so, I talked about hell as being punishment, banishment, and destruction. But Christ was punished for you. So that you don't stay to be the enemy of God. You're now a friend of God. Christ was banished. He says, God has forsaken him. He says, God, why have you forsaken me? He cries on the cross for your sake. And he was destroyed on the cross so that you don't have to be destroyed. So you can have hope in Christ. And so Christ is the way that we can become a friend of God. We can have peace with God. We can become a child of God. You know, it's one thing for a judge to absolve you of your crime. It's quite another thing to have you embrace him into his family. God says, in Christ, you are a child of God. He says, those you receive Christ will become the children of God. For that's how God loved you. And it says he raises you up to sit with Christ in heavenly realms. It's amazing. It says, I will give you of the inheritance that belongs to Christ. You become a partaker of Christ's inheritance. Imagine that. For eternity. And so his mercies are always greater in some ways than his anger. But even though his anger is terrifying. So why can't we escape hell? We can't escape hell. If we heed to Christ. Because God is abundantly merciful in Christ, my friends. God is abundantly resourceful to us in Christ. We must look to Christ. And not look to others and look to ourselves. 
a Puritan divine said, for every one look at yourself, give ten looks at Christ. Because in Christ is the answer to all of life. And I know it's a difficult doctrine to go through. We will talk about heaven and other things. But it is an important thing. Because this, this is an important aspect. If you, if you were to take a nautical image for the ship, the doctrine of hell is a ballast, says one popular preacher. A ballast, a counterweight. You take the ballast and throw it away, the ship loses direction and goes in different ways. You're misguided. It may not be the North Star. Christ is the North Star for us. But it provides the right balanced biblical view and the right background for you to appreciate the love and the mercies of God. If it is difficult for you, I won't blame you. I would encourage you to talk to your elders. The elders always pray for you. Our elders pray that none should go to hell. Our deacons, talk to our deacons. I talk to the older women in our church who are able to gently guide you in good godly counsel. Talk to the older men. Talk to one another in your connect groups. These are serious things. Because you don't know when you're going to die. If you have it all planned, if you know with certainty, maybe you can gamble. Maybe you can put away. But the book of Hebrews says, the time to act is always now. As long as it is called today, repent and embrace Christ. And so, consider these things soberly, my friends. And we will continue our discussion in this quarter with heaven and other things as the Lord allows. And I want to take a moment of quiet time and I will close in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a great God. We thank you that you speak to us so clearly. We are filled with fear and dread when we think about the prospect of hell. We, it is really beyond our imagination. It's a difficult thing for us. But, Father, you are a great God. And there is no one like you. And you're a merciful God. And you're a compassionate God, you're a loving God, and you've sent your Son, Christ Jesus, to die for us. And we thank you for that provision you've made in Christ. We pray for our church here at Grace Point, but the church universal, and other churches all over the world, that we would embrace Christ and continue to walk with Him until the end. And I pray that you would teach these truths, continue to encourage us as we read our Bible and as we go. Bless our time in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.